there's this thing in the Old Testament called the Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow was a way that a person would be dedicating their life to God, right? Just really uh, making a vow that they're sold out to God. And it included not eating the fruit of the vine, which means grape juice nor fermented grape juice or wine. But the other part of it was that a man wouldn't cut his hair until the time he was done with the Nazarite vow, at which time he would shave off his hair and give that hair as an offering on the altar. Hey, welcome to Whitefields Community Church Sermon Extra. Great to have you with us once again this week. I'm here with Pastor Nick Cady. He is the pastor of Whitefields Community Church here in Longmont, Colorado. And we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this week as we continue through our series called Grace and Truth, uh, just looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And uh, if you've missed, you missed Sunday's sermon, you weren't able to be here, you didn't catch it online, you can go to whitefieldschurch.com, you can find it there, you can download it from there, or YouTube or Facebook or any of your favorite uh, streaming platforms, you can find us up there. And uh, if you would, you know, you're watching this right now, just hit that uh, like button, hit that subscribe button, and share it with somebody, if you could, uh, on Facebook or uh, on YouTube or on, uh, you know, leave us a review on, on one of your uh, one of the, the platforms. If it's Apple, I believe Apple Music, you can give a five-star review. Right, tell us what you liked about it. And uh, it just certainly helps uh, us move up in the algorithms and, you know, as people are asking you know, questions about God. People are asking those things these days and they're typing it into Google. And, you know, these questions, these topics that we're bringing every week, they'll show up in their search engines and uh, we'll be able to provide them with Christ-centered and God-centered answers to their questions. And in front of us, we have one of those kind of interesting questions, you know, when you, you know, as we teach through the Bible, verse by verse and chapter by chapter and book by book, you know, you, there's a lot of things, and especially in 1 Corinthians, there's a lot of verses and sections of Scripture and topics that we cannot skip over. And, you know, this week was one of those weeks that just kind of, you know, interesting subject matter, but still very applicable for us today. And it's just good to dive into it and not just put it aside when we wrestle with the Word like this and when we think it through and chew on it and talk about it and preach it. You know, God really meets us there and speaks to us through his word. But you weren't able to cover everything. There's a lot of lot of stuff in this week. And one of the verses that, uh, actually two verses that you were not able to maybe, because uh, it really wasn't the main point, the main emphasis of the message. It was kind of a, a tangent, but still important uh, for us just maybe to discuss today. And that's verse 14, verse 15 of chapter 11. And it says, does not nature itself teach you that if a man Whereas long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. So what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, of course, you got to take it in context of what's yeah. being said. Now, I, I explained that a lot on Sunday, right? Which is that there was this issue where men wearing head coverings in church services was associated with paganism. Conversely, women wearing head coverings or headscarves was an, a sign in that culture of being married. And so for a married woman to remove her scarf, um, for whatever reason, was dishonoring to her husband. And Paul says, hey, we don't, we don't want to dishonor husbands in the church. It's just not what we do. And we don't also, on the men, men's side, we don't want to, you know, give any kind of mixed messages having to do with paganism and pagan worship, etc. So these were cultural issues, but they relate to principles which are not cultural, right? So 
uh, honoring husbands and uh, the order God has set about for marriage is not a cultural thing. Paul makes that clear in verses 7 through 10 there where he says this is something that's tied to creation. So it, it supersedes all culture and all time. What he's saying here, he's just kind of giving a, an anecdotal type of uh, evidence or kind of argument, right? It's not his main argument, but he says, look, I mean, look at nature. You'll notice that most men wear their hair short and most women wear their hair long. And that long hair looks like, if you will, it looks like a head covering, like a headscarf. And in the same way, men wearing short hair, you know, it, it's not like a headscarf. Again, we talked about some of the reasons why in that culture it wasn't, it was, it, it meant something if a woman had a shaved head or really short hair. And what it meant was, it could have meant several things, but it, none of them were good. None of them were things that most women would have wanted to communicate. And so uh, essentially what he's just saying here is, look, in most cultures, this is how it is. Now, it's kind of like asking a question, are men taller than women? Well, it's, how do you answer that question? I mean, on the one hand, is every man taller than every woman? Absolutely not. There are many women who are taller than many other men. But if you were to take the mean average, right, of just the whole world, and on average, are men taller than women? The answer would be yes. And that's how it works here, too. On average, in the history of the world, um, do most men have shorter hair than women? Yes. Do, do women have longer hair than men? On average, yes, that's the case in most cultures around the world. And Paul's just saying that should just be another form of evidence that it's proper for women in that culture to wear this head covering as a sign of modesty and as a sign of being married. Now, here's some examples of why we know that it's not... This, the Bible doesn't forbid men to have long hair, um, in every instance, for example, there's this thing in the Old Testament called the Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow was a way that a person would be dedicating their life to God, right? Just really uh, making a vow that they're sold out to God. And it included not eating the fruit of the vine, which means grape juice nor fermented grape juice or wine. But the other part of it was that a man wouldn't cut his hair until the time he was done with the Nazarite vow, at which time he would shave off his hair and give that hair as an offering on the altar. And we know that Paul the Apostle in the book of Acts, is it uh, Acts 20, he goes to Jerusalem. In Acts 21, he has some problems there in Jerusalem. But he goes to Jerusalem and he um, takes a Nazarite vow. So at some point, Paul's been growing out his hair and continues to grow out his hair to the point where it gets pretty long. Then he cuts it off and he offers it in the temple. Um, it's very likely that Jesus and his disciples would have had longer hair than most men do today. That was just the style of that time. So we need to recognize all of these things. You know, um, there are other examples we could give. Um, but for the most part, we know that it was not forbidden or wrong for a man to have long hair. Here's a good example. John the Baptist was a Nazarite from birth, which means he probably had very, very long hair. I mean, probably down to the bottom of his back. Um, so here's John the Baptist, you know, very long hair. He's, it's not a problem. It's not to his shame. He's doing that as unto the Lord. And I would say in our culture today, again, women having short hair doesn't mean what it did for them back then. It's not a sign that you're a criminal or that you are a prostitute or a lesbian. Not by any means. It's just a sign that you like your hair shorter. And there are feminine short haircuts, right? Like, in, and even if not, I mean, it's, it just doesn't mean the same thing in our culture. And in the same way, uh, men with long hair doesn't mean the same thing that it did 
uh, at that time. It doesn't communicate all of the same things. So it's really important and really difficult also, but challenging, but important for us to think through these things of what is cultural, what are eternal biblical principles that apply at all times. This is a practice which in you know, practitioner circles or maybe theological circles, we refer to this as contextualization. It means understanding the context which you are in and bringing the gospel into that context in a way that is understandable and clear and understanding the difference between what is culturally defined and what is not, what is, what is truly gospel and scripture. But here's a great example in 1 Corinthians 11 that oftentimes, look, if, if in your culture something means something, then you should pay attention to that because that matters, right? So if, if it's dishonoring in that culture to do something, don't do it, right? Why would you dishonor somebody? Uh, a verse that I wanted to mention on Sunday, but I didn't have time to fit it in, is found in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 15, where he says, seek to outdo one another in showing honor. I mean, that should be our posture, right? It's like a competition. Who can honor the other people more? And, uh, and the goal is to honor others more than they've even honored you. Yeah, and no, that's a very important uh, principle. You know, another, I guess another famous example came to mind, of course, was Samson, who also took a, took a Nazarite vow. You know, and, uh, but we also had a mutual friend uh, in, in uh, Hungary, who ended up becoming a pastor, but he had super long hair. Yeah. I remember there was a particular church uh, denomination that used this verse, and they would they'd always look at him, and they few times commented that he, was, he wasn't mature enough in his faith because mm. his hair was way too long. So, yeah. so, I mean, it's just something that's important, you know, to, to look at that, you know, this might be an obscure verse and something you might just read over, but it does have implications today, and there are people that are wrestling uh, with these questions. And, and just as we, you know, kind of, there were two topics you covered. One was that, uh, you know, this, uh, the first, the first section. And then the next section was from verse 17, covering the Lord's Supper, communion, and just a couple of few thoughts on that, because it's, you know, it's how churches take communion, uh, together. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, discussion. Uh, you know, I remember, one time having a conversation with the pastor who was visiting us and, you know, in Hungary. And he commented to me that the way we took communion as the church was he felt it was blasphemous. Like the way, you know, we had a worship time during worship communion table was open. People could come and, you know, anytime they wanted to, when they were ready, take communion by themselves or as a family or somebody else. And he felt that's not the way the church should be doing it and and you know so we just wanted to talk maybe a little bit about those kind of things like the idea of what what was Paul's talking about maybe some of the methodologies that that we we see today in the church and what might be right or what might be wrong or what are some arguments that we probably shouldn't even be having or what are your thoughts on that yeah so the practice is you know you get everything what's called closed communion closed communion means it's only uh, available to those who are approved members of the church. And the other, other side of that is open communion, mm -hmm. which sounds like what yeah. you had in Hungary. And um, that's where you don't really ask any questions. Anybody who wants to come to the table, it's between them and God. I think the issue here, though, is one of reverence, right? And discerning the body is what he says in um, one of the verses there. And so he says, anyone who eats without discerning the body brings judgment upon themselves. 
Now, what does that mean? I mentioned yeah. it's actually really, it's a debated between mm-hmm. Bible students and interpreters. Is Paul saying discerning the body of Christ, meaning that this is, um, that this is, this represents Jesus' sacrifice for us. And therefore, if you are not discerning that, if that, if you're not mindful of that, if you're not understanding that, then you are eating to your judgment but it would actually seem more in context that he's saying, if you don't do it with it, with discerning the body, that he's actually referring to the body of Christ, meaning the other people in the room. If you're not thoughtful of other people and you're doing it irreverently in a way that disregards the fact that your right, communion is about, like First John says, we have communion with the Father because of the Son and we have communion with one another. Right? So communion is two things. It's communion with God and communion with the body of Christ, the uh, community of believers who are, who are seeking to be disciples and follow in his way. And uh, it would seem that that's more the focus of what Paul's saying is he's saying, you know, you guys are acting so selfishly. It, you're shaming others rather than honoring others. And this isn't good. And God's going to correctively discipline you. In other words, in your life, unless, he says, unless you'll do it for yourself. And in which case, you'll get to not experience. You can learn it the hard way or you can learn it the easy way. And God, but God's going to teach you either way. And, and so, yeah, I think that, um, you know, some churches are really worried about um, people taking communion uh, irreverently because they're afraid that they will bring condemnation upon themselves. And I think there's a valid point there. You, you definitely want to have a spirit of reverence. But I don't think it requires us to like warn people, right? And say, mm-hmm. hey, don't take this wrong or else, right? I mean, it should be, that should be in the air, right? It should be part of, part of the community. Right now, we are honoring the Lord. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the person leading that communion time as well. So, Yeah, no, that it's, yeah, it's important to bring that up, you know, because, you know, in most churches, the tithe box has two purposes. It's one for tithes. It also ends up being a suggestion box. And, uh, you know, one of the most calm suggestions I've had over, you know, 20 some years of ministry is, is just that people saying, why don't you exhort people in communion in your exhortation? Why don't you warn others? Uh, and sometimes they, one of their things, you maybe just want to speak to this too, is they, they're afraid that they're unbelievers who would take communion and by doing that, bring condemnation to themselves. What, what do you think on that? Oh, man. I mean, this is a very interesting topic. And historically, it's been quite interesting. Um, everything from, and I, I don't agree with this, by the way, but this is an interesting thing. Uh, I read up on different views on communion. And John Wesley uh, had a very interesting view on communion. He called it and some, some denominations refer to it as this, as a means of grace. Now, what that means is almost different in every group who uses that term. It means something different. But for Wesley, he felt that taking communion actually helped people have faith and believe in Jesus. So he tried to give communion to as many unbelievers as he possibly could. <laughs> he was right about it. He's like, yeah, my goal is gather a crowd, preach to them the gospel, and then give communion because as they take it, it's a means of grace, which will help them to have faith in Jesus. Um, I don't think that that's a good idea. <laughs> like just trying to give people who don't 
trust in Jesus yeah. communion, like as a, as a, as a goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, I don't think that a person who doesn't yet believe in Jesus, if they take communion, that they're taking it to their condemnation or their judgment. Um, what he's talking about here, he's talking to believers mm-hmm. about showing irreverence in this sacrament, this sacred act that was given to us by Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, if you even look at the wording, the way it's worded, he's he's trying to correct them back to a much more reverent understanding and a much more appreciation. Right? This isn't a snack, right, that we do as Christians. Um, it, this is something which is to be uh, where we are thinking about what Jesus did for us and responding to him in the moment, right? So, um, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend that people who are not Christians— be taking communion. But on the other hand, I don't think that, um, I think that if they are understanding what it is, Mm -hmm. then I don't think that they're in danger of bringing judgment upon themselves. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's very important. Uh, and you know, thank you for your thoughts on that. It's, yeah, I think it's important to clarify that because there are a lot of people that, you know, maybe are afraid on that point for us. I think, you know, we, we're just glad they're in the room. And, uh, you know, if that's something, a lot of people would just take it because they feel self-conscious, you know, many times they pass the plate or whatever. And like, well, if I don't take communion, that could mean, and then people look at me and, you know, so that, you know, that's important. So there you have it. There's just a lot of principles to think on, you know, I go, go and read first Corinthians chapter 11 and then maybe just read it now with new eyes and just understanding the context and, uh, what Paul was trying to say and just some of the greater principles and, uh, you know, Go over there, whitefieldschurch.com, download, listen to the sermon, YouTube, Facebook, and, uh, you know, maybe help you guide you through that chapter. And a very, very fascinating chapter. A lot of important things for us to learn, especially about the one thing that is very important to us, and that's, of course, the Lord's Supper, a time really for us to remember and reflect. And I, for myself, I always, it's always like a starting point. I always see communion as a starting point. It reminds me of what Jesus did. And he said, it is finished. When he says finished, that means my life began. And so whenever I look at communion, every Sunday, you know, you take it. For me, it's a starting point. That means that I am in Christ, I have his righteousness. I am a new creation. And, and it just helps me kind of live live that out and empower me to live that out because of what Christ has done for me. So maybe that's something you can think through when you take communion and how important it is and just, uh, you know, thinking of what Christ has done and let, let that empower you for, for the next days, you know, and months and every time you take it. So great to have you with us this week. Whitefieldschurch.com. And we look forward to seeing you again. God bless.